Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. How low can we make carbon emissions go? Equinor's answer is one kilometre below the seabed. We're planning to capture CO2 emissions and safely store them under the sea. Visit equinor.co.uk. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Music should be your escape, said the hip-hop legend Missy Elliott. And she was right. And no one in the political world encapsulates that better than our guest on the podcast this week. Six years ago, in 2016, Tom Watson was not in the happiest place. Deputy leader of a mutinous Labour Party more divided than ever under the Marmite leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. Britain had just voted to leave the EU. Labour looked, and were, a long way from power. And Westminster was an uncomfortable environment for a centre-left Remainer whose Machiavellian reputation within his party dating back to the legendary Curry House plot of the Blair-Brown years, had made him public enemy number one in the paranoid eyes of Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters. Tom's weight had ballooned to more than 20 stone. He'd just been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. It must have felt like something of a low. Fast forward six years and we find Tom in a very different place. He quit as an MP in 2019 and is now chairman of UK Music, the lobbying group which represents Britain's music industry. And guess what? Hobnobbing with bands, grooving at Glastonbury, he's having a good time. His weight loss programme has been legendary. He shed something like eight stone after his 2016 nadir, to the extent that he's just published his second self-help memoir inside three years, telling others how to do it. The endless political battles he found himself caught up in, or perhaps threw himself into headlong, against Tony Blair, Rupert Murdoch, Len McCluskey, the whole of the Labour left, are now just war stories for him to recount in the pub or on podcasts like these. Tom was in London on Tuesday, still groggy from the Glastonbury weekend, but was good enough to swing by our studios to meet my co-host, Alva Ray. He was relaxed. He was funny. He was proper good company. And he thinks about life very differently now compared to those dizzying days in the maelstrom of Westminster. He talked about the coup against Tony Blair. I do regret that. If I could turn back the hands of time, it wouldn't have happened that way. The coup against Jeremy Corbyn. I remember Len McCluskey phoning me when I was slumped in the back of this Skoda. The only thing I can remember saying to him is, Len, can you shout at me a bit more quietly, please? And his decision to quit politics for good. I woke up and the sun was shining. It was like I'd shed an even 
larger amount of weight. So from Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're inviting you to meet Tom Watson, to revel in those war stories, to hear his views on the Labour Party and much else besides, and to maybe think a little bit deeper, too, about life beyond SW1. Tom Watson, you're just back from Glastonbury. Have you have you recovered yet? No, I'm very sleep deprived and I'm very croaky and it was fantastic. I'm a little bit sunburnt, but it was a fantastic weekend. I gather there's a long and hallowed tradition of you attending Glastonbury and being papped at it in various guises. Yeah, I think I might have got away with it this time, you know, because that balaclava helps these days. And um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I've had a really chequered career of Glastonbury's. My first one was in 1985 when I was a teenager and I was at the top of the Labour Party bus at three o'clock in the morning when a marauding band of hallucinating anarchists tried to tip the bus over and they all slipped over in the mud, thankfully, otherwise I might have fallen off the top of the deck. You were tasked with looking after the Labour bus that time, were you? Well, it was me and a colleague from the computer department and she turned up with her Alsatian dog and we went down there and the driver went off for three days and then my colleague from the computer department disappeared 10 minutes later and I never saw her again. So she left me on the bus with the dog, which at the time I was very irritated about. But when the anarchists arrived, the dog howled like a wolf and helped scare them off. So I was sort of relieved in the end. <laughs> You've served off various Glastonbury looks, um, you know, well, that people <laughs> <laughs> down the years that people yeah. have tried to copy. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, that was one when I, I, it was post-Brexit, um, and I'd only just started using Snapchat and it had been a hell of a week so I ended up drinking very heavily with my pals from the GMB on the first night chronicled all this on Snapchat and then there was a massive crisis in the Labour Party that was most days but this was one a particularly bad one where it led to a, the no confidence of Jeremy Corbyn this is 2016 so I, I was only there for 14 hours and um, so I had about two hours sleep. That was a total nightmare. And I woke up the next day, all my Snapchat images on all the new sites, and I realised it was going to be a very bad weekend. Yeah, Hillary Benn had, had resigned from the Shadow Cabinet and you were in a muddy field in Glastonbury. Yeah, about 7am. There was 100 mixed, missed calls and texts and my head was spinning. I was seeing double. I'd got no cash. I'd forgotten to go to a cash point. I missed my train back to London. The, you know, there's a media patron to hunt me down. I had to negotiate with no money in my pocket with a minicab driver who had a 25-year-old Skoda to drive me back to London. And I've got vague memories of the call. I remember Len McCluskey phoning me when I was slumped in the back of this Skoda. And the only thing I can remember saying to him is, Len, can you shout at me a bit more quietly, please? Uh, so it was it was a very bad day. And what I should have done was stay down there and carry on drinking because by the time I got back, a third of the Shadow Cabinet resigned and we were in a full-on crisis and there's absolutely nothing I could do about it. (laughs) And this year, a bit less eventful then? A bit less eventful this year, yeah. I managed to see a lot of bands this year, do a lot of singing, do some dancing without being perhaps That was always a bit tricky. There was a photographer chasing me. Um, So I really, really enjoyed this weekend. The Mm. weather was great and I saw loads and loads of bands. It's a hard life being chair of UK Music. It is a very hard life. Although I've got to say, you know, it was the only time I've really managed to sort of go out and enjoy myself as chair of UK Music because, of course, I was appointed. And then we had COVID lockdown 
and the whole music industry was in crisis. And it, so at one point we were, you know, trying to work out how we could give session musicians food parcels because all their money ran out. So it was very, it was a very difficult two years, which is probably why I was celebrated a lot this weekend because it was great for Glasgow to be back. What was your highlight? I've got a few really. I mean, because I'm an old man, Paul McCartney at eighty. That was a great session. And then I saw, but the openers on that day were a band called Easy Life, and I was really pleased to see them because that's the first band that my teenage son recommended to me. And I thought to myself, if I like this band and my son likes this band, they're going to be massive. So, and they did a great performance. And then the bits where I'm glad I wasn't spotted, Cole Cox DJing between 1am and 3am, and I was with five of my pals who were all in their 40s and 50s. We were the most ridiculous people there enjoying ourselves dancing, so that was pretty good. Pals who still work in politics in some cases? I'm not going to name the names. I feel like that's a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you find, find me the evidence. Um, but Tom Watson, it's such a pleasure to, to have you on the podcast um, because, of course, you're not just chair of UK Music, um, but you're now an, an author, um, lifestyle guru, um, <laughs> and you've had this great long career in British politics. So... I would just kind of like to begin by asking you something that I would have been dying to ask you from the second that you announced that you were retiring, really. Yeah. It looks as though over a long period of time, you started making changes. You sort of realised with diabetes and everything that you wanted to live a healthier lifestyle. And then eventually that culminated in you leaving politics. It just means as someone who still works in Westminster, I kind of think... Was Tom Watson on something? Is it fun- <laughs> <laughs> is it fundamentally really quite difficult to live a healthy lifestyle and look after yourself if you're in politics? Well, it was for me. Um, I mean, the reason I stood down. There's lots of reasons why you'd leave a job like that, quite high profile. I mean, I'd been, but I'd worked for the Labour Party and in public life for a very long time. I was an MP for twenty years. But I first worked for the Labour Party when I was a school leaver. I was just turned 17. So I'd been doing it a long time. But, you know, there's no off switch when you're an MP. It's 24-7, it's seven days a week. I, t- I laugh about it now. The first thing I did when I woke up in the morning was lean over, you know, put my hand out from under the duvet, grab my phone to look at the media brief, which is sent to me between, like, 4 and 5.30 in the morning. And you saw, I look back on it now, that's a very unhealthy, you know, it's not a great, there's no balance really. And as I started to get healthier, it's five years ago now that I pulled all the weight off, I just started getting a little bit more chilled out. And, you, you know, all the, I mean, it was a really intense crucible at the time, you know, like secret resolutions to abolish my job and all, you know, crazy Labour Party going mad stuff. And it just, it ended up being a very easy decision, but I I still haven't quite worked out whether my health journey helped me just sort of decide I was too chilled out for the battles, really. I wasn't sure whether I was doing the right thing because I didn't have anything to go to. It was a spur-of-the-moment decision. And I thought, if I wake up the day after announcing I'm standing down and I regret it, it'll be the worst day of my life. But I woke up and the sun was shining. It was like I'd shed an even larger amount of weight and I've not really looked back really occasionally you know miss everyone but not very often it's a really really interesting story and I really want to go go through the whole journey so if you don't mind if we sort of wind the hands of time back a bit Tom Watson during the Blair Brown years 
Would you mind describing in your own words what that Tom Watson was like? Well, I mean, when I started this health journey, there was a sort of epiphany moment for me when I realised that most things I'd done in life, even though I was moderately successful in my chosen path, everything I was doing was a reaction to events, you know, reacting against growing up in Thatcher's Britain in the Midlands in the 80s and going down to London to look for my fortune, you know, being sneered at by liberal elites in the Labour Party when I was a school leaver, you know, doing the photocopying for everyone at the Labour Party. And it kind of drove me. So I, I think I was driven... I wanted to win all the time. I wanted to win arguments, pol- elections, policy debates, positions. But most MPs are like that. You know, they're very highly motivated. And that's what it was like, you know. And, of course, you're in government. You know, it's even more intense than when you're in opposition. You're kind of viewed, fairly or unfairly, I don't know what you think, as as one of the, the central people in in icing Tony Blair, essentially, that it was your resignation, it was your signature on that letter, your chats with Gordon Brown. You're sitting here now, you're talking about how, you know, your health journey kind of chilled you out a lot. Um, But you had that reputation back then as, you know, a quite tough organiser. You wouldn't mess with Tom Watson. Gordon Brown's enforcer. Do you recognise that characterisation? Well, the the, the reason I'm smiling when you say that, I'm sort of laughing about it because actually the, the one that I always find hardest to think about is actually that I'm a tough organiser because anyone that's ever known me knows that I'm probably the most disorganised person on planet earth in fact since I left politics one of the things I've had done in my you know in my 50s is formally get a diagnosis of ADHD so even though people thought I was a good organiser I was hopeless I was late for every you know I could never organise anything (laughs) And people say that you know that that episode with Tony was um, was a coup. It, it it wasn't a coup. It was a riot. It was very badly organised. They say it was like a sort of military operation. It wasn't. It was very reflexive. You know, obviously, I've had time to reflect on it. And actually, when I was deputy leader, one of the person very graciously, given what had gone on, one of the people who was very supportive and very kind and very thoughtful was actually Tony and Peter Mandelson as well as Gordon. Um, And I found their counsel very sustaining in very tough times. So, you know, if you're asking me, do I have any regrets? Yeah, I do regret that. I do Mm. regret that. And I I wish it, you know, if I could turn back the hands of time, as you mentioned, it wouldn't have happened that way. Yeah. Um, Yeah, because I've I've heard you say before that you wouldn't... that Tony Blair was owed a, a better resignation than that, that you were... Oh, yeah, I think he was. I mean, the, tr- yeah. the thing is, I didn't... I know it sounds naive, but I, I didn't actually know how you resigned. You know, I, at one point I was resigning, but I didn't know how I did it. What I should have done was go and see him. You know, there are lots of reasons, mainly to do with ADHD, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I, never, I never sorted it that way. But, but what was it? What was it like? I mean, I think people would have quite a lot of sympathy for you. You were still very young at that age, yeah. And and you still, you know, engaged in in high level politics. I can imagine it was quite frantic. What was it like to be in the thick of it? Well, it's full on. It's very hard to sort of take a long view. You're in you're in the moment. It's very intense. It's coming at you from all sides. And you know you you've only got a partial picture, and where you you know you have to make decisions very very quickly. You're doing an interview with a tough political journalist. They th- throw you a curveball. You say something, 
next thing you know, you're leading the news and you don't mean to be. There's a whole load of series of potential catastrophes you can bring upon yourself. So there's always that kind of, you know, f- f- potential failure for anything you do uh, and, and you know, with added public humiliation at the time when the tabloids were at their most ferocious. So it was very intense. Um and I kind of look back on it, it is a little bit like looking on another life now, you know, I've got a much quieter life now. Your political career, maybe you would see it differently, but people probably think of it as sort of like Blair Brown, New Labour, and then this period taking on Murdoch. There's outrage in the UK over claims a tabloid newspaper may have hacked into the voicemail messages of victims of serious crime. The chief reporter and former news editor of the News of the World were arrested today by police investigating the phone hacking scandal. Rupert Murdoch, a man who is not used to groveling, is on an apology tour. I was appalled the night I wanted to happen. Tom Watson, you've asked Rupert Murdoch to appear before a parliamentary media committee. Yes, I think they've got a lot of questions to answer and they should do the decent thing and turn up. Rupert Murdoch on the hot seat today. So none of your UK staff draw your attention to this serious wrongdoing, even though the case received widespread media attention. I think my son can perhaps answer that in more detail. He was a lot closer to it. I'll come to your son in a minute. The Murdoch time. When you look back on that, how do you feel? I mean, there's a thing you get with ADHD, which I've now read about. I didn't know much about it at the time. They call it hyperfocus, where you can only sort of concentrate on one thing. And, you know, you can go for days on end where you're just, if you're working on a project or playing a video game or, you know, that's all you can think about. Well, of course, the phone hacking inquiry for me, that was like a year of hyperfocus. There was nothing else, you know, all other life activities were secondary to trying to get this global media organisation that broke the law in focus. And it was very intense. It was actually frightening. You know, I used to say, I think people are following me. And, you know, you'd go to the tea room and say that. And, you know, colleagues would say, who the hell do you think you are? No one knows who you are. You're not going to be followed. It turns out, you know, I, I was followed. I got to know, to talk to the private investigator who was an ex-Metropolitan Police officer trained in covert surveillance who used to follow me. It was a little bit like a John le Carré novel in parts, but I'm, and I'm very glad it's behind me. And I, I would imagine it was hard for your family too. It, it was terrible for my family, you know. Uh, it led to my marriage collapsing, really. And um, it's only in recent years that Siobhan and I have been able to talk about it and put it in some perspective, because it it's really, really hard on your loved ones, you know, they support you because you're trying to do the right thing, but they don't sign up to that. One thing I remember Siobhan saying, you know, she opened the curtains one day and all she could see was fingerprints on the glass where tabloid journalists were trying to look through into the living room. And it's, you know, you just don't feel safe in your own home. They got over a six-foot fence and were rooting through things in my garage. We had, at the time, the next-door neighbour thought it was a burglar. So I think he got one of these guys in a headlock. But then when they went the other when they did go through the bins, Sersha, my youngest, had been very poorly that week. So they put their hand in and obviously put their hand in a a, a, a sack full of dirty nappies, which sometimes cheers me up when I think about it. <laughs> Small revenge. It's <laughs> the little things. It's the little things. But you really, you really had it tough through that whole period. Yeah, because it was very lonely as well. You know, I'd go into news studios and there were other MPs, I'm not going to name them, but 
you know, they didn't want to be seen in the same place in case they were associated with me because I was under fire. They were using every avenue, legal, political, their own newspapers, to try and pressure me either not to investigate or, worse, discredit me. Well, I'm just wondering, do you think that that's a bit different now? I know that you're, you're not personally in the thick of it, but looking on the tabloid landscape, is it any different? I mean, it's still going on the phone. You know, there are still people whose phones were hacked that have civil cases, um, so it's not over. But I think the culture is, you know, I don't think they sort of routinely break the law. I still think it, there's very great, tough scrutiny of people in public life. You know, in my latter years, I was so used to it that I probably developed better mechanisms for letting it wash over me rather than hit me, but... I do feel sorry for that new cadre of MPs because the first time you go through a sort you know, when you're in a media storm and the lobby will push right back at me on this, but they do occasionally go a bit mad. You know, they get when there's when they think there's a bigger story than there actually is, there's a sort of pack like behaviour. We did a whole episode on this. <laughs> <yet>. <laughs> yeah. And they kinda of like because they haven't got a new fact, they sort of bounce off each other a little bit and if if you're the subject of that story, it can take you a long time to sort of get to the other side of it, where you've you know the, the whole story is told. Of course, they, the, the lobby have then moved on, but you're left there feeling bruised and a little bit bewildered about you know the fact that you've been going to work in the morning. There's 25 people with cameras outside your gate. You know, it's it's not a natural state of being for humanity. And if you've yeah. entered public life for all the right reasons, nothing really prepares you for that. You know, hearing you talk about how tough that Murdoch experience was, that you would then go for a yet more high-powered role as deputy yeah. leader of the Labour Party. That's only just occurring to me hearing you, hearing you put yeah. it like that. But then, you know, yeah. put, putting yourself in in a sense yet more in the firing line or certainly taking on yet more responsibility. Well, the, the people who were surprised by that were probably right. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's not you got to do what you think's right. And I thought I had something to offer. I, I thought I could actually reform the Labour Party's campaigning, you know, sharpen it up. I mean, obviously it didn't work out that way, but at the time I thought that would be a role I could play. Where I think I did do the right thing, when I stood down, I thought I left at the right time. And, you know, some people were angry with me. They thought I was almost walking away from a fight or deserting them, but I wasn't doing that. I'd just done my bit and... I'd been going for a long time. And I look at those, you know, those MPs, you know, they're in their 70s or 80s. They've probably been ministers in a government. You know, they're either in opposition or on the backbenches now, dining out on past glories. And slowly over time, they, you know, they get quite bitter. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of, not all of them, but I didn't want to become that person. I thought if I go now, there's still things I can do in life that we can make a sort of, positive contribution there's plenty of other people who can do this job and we can pass on but i would imagine that at that point you know you weren't clear that keir starmer would win a leadership contest or that things would change again in terms of the political outlook for labor what at the point where you stood down what did you think was going to happen i i I thought we would be annihilated in the election I thought Jeremy would have Jeremy and John McDonnell would have to carry the can because they controlled everything. They controlled the executive. They controlled the shadow cabinet. You know, there was no alternative voices taking responsibility. That one of the things I deliberately didn't do because they were very happy for people to think I'd leaked the previous manifesto. I didn't go to the manifesto meeting, nor did I look at an advanced copy of it 
But I thought if it had leaked, that would, you know, they'd mm. point the finger at me. But I didn't want it. I just thought they could own this. And and in the end, they did. And they, you know, fair play. They had their run at it. They had their sort of hard left socialist program. And there was a total meltdown and the Labour Party nearly collapsed. But thankfully, Keir Starmer won the election when Jeremy stood down. And the one thing that does surprise me as a sort of veteran who's only recently started turning the news back on after a year, year and a half of not turning the news oh, really? on. really? Yeah. I, don't, I don't think people give Keir Starmer enough credit for the journey the Labour Party has been on because it is, frankly, an absolute miracle that we're doing so well in not just on, you know, the bit of the polls that says what's your voting intention, but on leadership ratings, on economic competency... No, so I thought those local government elections were much better for us than the sort of media narrative. Don't want to go back to pack like behaviour with the lobby again, but in some of those red wall seats, we did make incursions and it looked pretty good to me. That's not to say there's not a lot more to do, but if you'd have said to me two years ago, where do you, where do you think the Labour Party should be in two years? I'd have, I'd have taken this. And, and you say that really having having been on the inside. You know, I mean, when I was the photocopy kid in the library in 1984, Neil Kinnock was leader. We'd had 1983. I remember photocopying the private polling on the first day of the general election. I was, you know, I used to give it to the campaign management team. And the polling was so bad that I then had to go and shred the polling in case it <laughs> leaked. And, you know, we had 87. And I, I think on the night... We lost, the Tories had 107 majority, you know, and I remember crying that when it went to three figures, I was only a kid. That's a long, hard slog back to rebuild trust. When you lose support of your natural supporters, you've got to work really hard to win trust back. Coming up after the break, Tom Watson discusses Jeremy Corbyn and the plot to abolish his job as deputy leader while he ate dinner oblivious in a Chinese restaurant. He talks about the mountain Labour still needs to climb before the next election and has one or two unlikely suggestions as to who might succeed Boris Johnson as Tory leader. Stay with us. A message from Equinor. Back to that question. How low can we make carbon emissions go? Our answer is one kilometre below the seabed. At Equinor, we're planning to use carbon capture and storage to help decarbonise the north of England. Carbon emissions from the Humber and Teesside regions will be safely stored one kilometre below the North Sea. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community 
to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. There were all these sort of machinations and political pressures on you. Yeah. At this point when you started sort of taking care of yourself and thinking about things a bit differently, I'd just love to know how that unfolded. Well, I, I, I mean, for a start, I would say... If, I, if I've got another book in me, it would be what ADHD has taught me about leadership, right? about how you have to deconstruct every failure. You know, mm. I had to really think deeply about, you know, why have I just eaten three Mars bars and not noticed it? I've spent a lot of time working that out. And I sort of had to negotiate my diary with my own team because there were huge demands on me and to find that space to do that. But in the end, they were all really keen on it because they said I just made decisions more comprehensively in a calmer manner, in a timely fashion. That thing you said about being a good organiser, I was probably only a good organiser in the last two years before I left politics <laughs> because I'd been on the health journey. And, it, and you know, if there's, a, if there's a wider reflection for everyone else, you know, that those crazy hours, those sleepless nights, those sort of, you know, lunch on the run, you know, excess, to, you know, three coffees before you go to a committee at 9.25am, you know, that's not great for sort of clear and concise decision-making. You know, you could do a little bit around how you make good decisions in politics. There are things I think you could do. I look yeah. at Number 10 Downing Street, having worked there, it's the craziest place to run the country from. You know, it's a grade one listed building. You know, you know people are you know, working out of broom cupboards. There's hardly any Wi-Fi. There's, you know, animals running around. You, you go and get all your core team nearby. I mean, you should really be in a better building with better Wi-Fi, you know. And all those little things about how you professionalise decision-making in government, you could do quite a big job of work on, I think. I would imagine your routine in Westminster, certainly mine and, and a lot of people's, it often involves sort of, you know, going for drinks after work, you take a source for a drink. People don't really eat dinner or they eat a huge dinner really, really late. Yeah. People sort of surviving on pints and crisps. You you write in your book about not knowing when you would arrive yeah. at home in the evenings. Get, getting enough sleep was just sort of alien for a frontline politician. So many things yeah. uh, like that. Well, I mean, sleep mm. deprivation is definitely one of them. You could you could probably play with the hours a bit. That's, 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 mm. I mean, when I was a young MP, you know, it wasn't unusual to go out to karaoke until two in the morning, but you were voting till 10, 30, 11 o'clock. So you kind of, your five o'clock was 11 o'clock, or, mm. or, you know, and... Um, I mean, by the time I stood down, you know, if there wasn't a 10 o'clock vote, I was in bed at 8.30, you know, and these days I try and get eight unbroken hours sleep. The world would be a much calmer, peaceful place if every politician in every legislature around the world could get eight unbroken hours sleep, I tell you that. You're very candid in, in the book about your experience going into the third lockdown, which I know was a a really miserable time for a lot of people. And you're really, I think people will appreciate you being honest about how, I think you say that probably that's the closest in your life that you've come to depression. Yeah, you know, I, I lost my dad. It, it, was, it was a tough time. And I mean, I am the world's living expert on failure. Right? I've done every diet known to humanity over 30 years and I failed on every one. When I lost all the weight and got my bite, I, 
thought, this is fantastic. I've cracked it. I'm, you know, I'm like the Buddha. I'm the calmest I've ever been. I've, I've climbed this peak. But what I realised was, you know, I was only at a plateau and there's still another mountain to climb. It took me time to get there. But when you're feeling a bit bleak and a bit down, if you can deconstruct that and you've got something you can aim at, your 10,000 steps a day or half a mile on your bike or whatever it is, whatever works for you, it just helps you through it. But it is hard, you know. I mean, it took me time to get there. When you launched your first book, you spoke about how you had to do a lot of work on yourself and a lot of thinking yeah. as well. And that was that, and again, that was all happening sort of in the period right before you, you left politics. I'm wondering what was going through your head in that time right before you decided to buy out? I, I, I'm still working through some of that. I, I mean, I, it, I think the physical health changes just gave me a little bit more cognitive bandwidth to, to reflect more deeply. Plus the fact, you know, you reach your middle years, you've got more you can reflect on. I just spend a little bit more time with myself thinking about where I wanted to be in life. That's the other thing about public life, particularly being an MP. You're hardly ever on your own. You're on the move, you're with people, you're on train journeys with your team, you're doing by-elections, you're doing public meetings, fundraising dinners, you're in studios. You know, you're quite often very public, but also surrounded by people and... When you're trying to sort of walk 10,000 steps a day in Kennington Park at six in the morning, you know, watching the sunrise, it's a totally different setting. I now consciously try and go for walks where I can have periods where I think about things. But it's very hard in a political life to do that. And also, you know, people have lots of jobs where that's, you know, if you're doing shifts or you're in a high pressure management job, I guess, that's still quite hard to find the time to do that. I can imagine there was a lot of acrimony at that time were you feeling the pressure from you know for example MPs who ended up defecting yeah. did you feel under pressure to be a leader for them? I felt very responsible for two things firstly I mean people said that I was disloyal to Jeremy I've, actually I didn't speak out on, I spoke out on Europe because I thought there was a national interest I spoke out on anti-Semitism because I'm an avowed anti-racist and Jewish people were being bullied in my party and then Beyond those two issues, I, I was, you know, I love the Labour Party. It's in me. You know, it's, it's, I wouldn't, it's who I am. And it, it's a century-old institution that's the randomness of fate had meant that I had some responsibility for on that period of time. So there was a lot of pressure, but my goal was to try and hold the Labour Party together or, or at one point, you know, if it collapsed, try and hold the democratic socialist social democratic bit in one place um and i didn't know where that was going to go at one point you know i thought this might deteriorate so badly that the party does split and i realized i needed to sort of up my game and you know, really make the case for the labor party that i believe in and thankfully a lot of mps sort of responded to that and i think it gave them the confidence that you know in the long run you know that that core of belief would would stick together, whatever happened. Um, so were you sort of wandering around Kennington Park, you know, at this time, sort of beginning to do, to get your steps in every morning, having this time to reflect for the first time, thinking, oh, oh chuck them and I was just, just left. <laughs> and, oh. and, you know, oh, and I've got Len McCluskey on the phone. And were, were, was, was that all happening at the same time as you thinking, 
I'm trying to take better care of myself. It depended on the day. I mean, quite often, I mean, I would walk very often in Kennington. I've got a really close friend, uh, David. He would come and walk with me. So very often that would be about, you know, what dub reggae we were listening to or, you know, the autumn leaves in Kennington Park. So there was a sort of different conversation and deliberately so, I think. But there were other days where... You know, those ambient thoughts about what ifs, you know, what happens if this happens, so-and-so's done this, how shall I handle that? Of course, that's kind of like the day-to-day. They weren't dominating thoughts. I mean, the sort of vitriol and the hate, it sounds, I mean, given that it was so intense, never really worried me that. I mean, I think if you're in the crucible, you know, there's quite a lot of flawed people in politics you know, there's one thing where Durham Miners gone, you know, Len McCluskey, he like swore, you know, he used the F word. A simple message to Tom and his pals, you should f***ing well be ashamed yeah. of yourself. Yeah. I remember thinking, oh God, the kids will see that. It wasn't that it was directed at me, it was that he used a swear word, you know, and I was like a bit shocked by that. But other than that, it, you know... It, I just thought people were losing their heads, you know, and um, they needed to remain calm. And, I mean, I remember that conference, the eve of the first night of Labour conference in Brighton, and there were moves to remove the position of deputy leader of the Labour Party altogether. And I gather from from other things that you said, by this point on your health journey and everything and with this new perspective, you were actually quite relaxed. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I was very relaxed. I mean, because it was almost funny. I mean, it of all the ridiculous anti-democratic things you do, I, I just realised that I, I, I was pretty certain it wouldn't last, you know, because and I just thought, you, you know, you've actually destroyed this pre-election conference already, right, before we've even met. And they misled me as well. You know, I, I was in a Chinese restaurant with my eldest child, but, you know, and I remember getting this text message saying, oh, you know, under any other business, they're moving this resolution to avoid you. And I remember just laughing at Malachi. They said, what are you laughing at, Dad? I said, oh, yeah, they're going to abolish the deputy leader's post in, under any... And he said, they can't, surely they can't do that. I said, yeah, they're doing that. So by the time I got down there, I was just thinking, well, let's just enjoy the ride and see what happens. And actually, they would have actually done it. The, the reason it didn't go through was Claudia Webb, who was... She's now an MP. I, think she, I don't think she's got the Labour whip anymore. She's convicted... I can't remember what the conviction is, but she was in that faction... And she got to the meeting too late to vote. But if she'd have turned up on time, they would have voted to abolish it. So it, thanks, Claudia. I appreciate you being very as disorganised as I was. Well, I, I've tried not to keep you for, for too much longer. So kind of final final question. Um, as a, a, just a well-informed political observer now, you know, with, with this vast experience of, you know, as you say, a lifetime in Labour politics, what do you think is going to happen now? Just as a as someone who's been in the thick of it, what's yeah. going to happen with Boris Johnson? If you had to put your money on it, who would succeed him? How long will he last? Okay, so firstly, the people listening to this should not li- should not take any store by what I say because there's nothing more excellent than an ex-politician, right? I'm not across all the cut and thrust. I think it would be very hard for Boris to lead his party into the next election mainly because I think there's too many of his MPs don't want him to. Uh, Whether he can redeem himself or not, I think think there's enough MPs made their mind up. I don't know what the outcome of the election is. What I do know is, if I was a betting person, after 2019, I, I would have said it is an absolute certainty 
that the Tories will be in government at the next election because the electoral mounting the Labour Party has to climb is so great. But because of the, you know, the various scandals and convictions, I think it is game on. I think Labour does have a chance. I saw... I mean, the Wakefield by-election result, they should t- they should be very proud of themselves. They ran a good campaign there. But also, if you look at the Lib Dems, that Tiverton result is one of the most remarkable elections. I used to do by-elections. I mean, that's a genuine, amazing result for everyone. They could probably win. You know, they're now contending in every seat in the southwest, in my view, looking at the scale of the swing there. And Labour doing better in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon... Going off the boil a little bit, there's there's a there's a potential for a, 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 a you know a Tory majority to be overturned, but it's still a really big climb for Labour to do in one election. I wish them well with it though, and I think people look at Keir. I think they think he could be their prime minister. I think they like his integrity and his decency. I think he can do it. And looking at the Tory party. Who, if you were Keir, would you be worried about as as a as potential leader? Ironically, for me, this this is this is probably a very unfashionable view, but I look at the conditions they're in now, and I think someone like David Davis, who's very experienced, you know, he knows all the different factions. What they're going to need is someone who can bring everyone back around the table and build a balanced cabinet if Boris goes. So someone like David Davis could provide cogency and coherence, or if they cross a generation, um, you know, someone like Tom Tugendhat, who served his country, um, you know, still believes that, you know, he's obviously got a noble calling to politics. They've got plenty of very talented people that they that could tell a different story about their party if they if they want to. But I'm just not sure if. You know, the wider parliamentary party is ready to make those big decisions or not. And I've been there with Tony and Gordon. It's very hard when you're you're in the trenches to see a sort of long-term view. So that's Tom Watson, the political plotter turned lifestyle guru. If there's a more unlikely path taken by an ex-politician over recent years, then, with the possible exception of his old mate Ed Balls, I've yet to hear it. His thoughts on Labour's past and present and the wider political landscape are always worth hearing. But it's the other stuff that maybe one or two of us in Westminster should be paying close attention to. It's weirdly reassuring to hear that there can be a better life waiting beyond politics, if you look for it. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with Alva Ray and me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free, wherever you get your podcasts. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. We'll be back next week. See you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.